Psalm 14.1 is perhaps one of the most well-known verses. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Sadly, there are many fools today. Atheism, the lack of belief in any God, is the religion and ideology of the modern world. Mass acceptance of atheism began to breed during the Age of Enlightenment. It bloomed against the suffering and destruction of the world wars. God's supposed absence motivated many to rethink whether or not God was real. And finally, with the dawn of postmodernism, acceptance of atheism boomed. The rejection of absolute truths ushered in a complete rejection of God. Psalm 14 was written by David for the choir director, meaning that it was to be used in worship. And along with Psalm 53, Psalm 14 parallels the truths indicating that they were penned at the same time. The only difference between the two is that Psalm 14 invokes the name Yahweh, while Psalm 53 uses the name or title Elohim. And so as we look at Psalm 14, which begins again with the fool said in his heart, there is no God, we can title this psalm, The Self-Delusion of Fools. The Self-Delusion of Fools. And we're going to look at two main thoughts. First of all, in verses 1 through 4, the traits of the fool, the traits of the fool. And then in verses 5 through 7, we will look at the tendency of the fool, the tendency of the fool. So let's begin with the traits of the fool. And the very first trait we find of the fool, or of the atheist, is depravity. Again, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. See, the fool is the individual who has no perception of ethical or spiritual claims. As Psalm 74, 22 says, the foolish man reproaches God daily. See, they believe just enough to be angry. So Proverbs 9.10 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but the fool, in denying God, denies wisdom itself. And that is why he is a fool. See, the surrender of the knowledge of God, or at the very least, the rejection of a formal belief in God, opens the door to all kinds of immorality and corruption. You see, when you deny God, you are denying the basis for morality because God is good. And when we read those verses in Scripture that declare God's goodness, the word goodness means morally excellent. So the fact that God's very character is morally excellent means he's the standard of morality. So if you deny God, you not only deny wisdom, you deny morality. You are depraved. And with the dismissal of wisdom, with the dismissal of morality, accountability is lost, and the depravity of humanity is unleashed. You know, the modern era in which we live has seen some of the greatest technical advances. And yet for all the great technical advances, the irony is that this is the same period of the greatest mass destruction. And it goes back to atheism. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now the second trait of the fool is not only the depravity, but the second trait here is defilement. Again, second part of verse 1 to verse 3. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. 
The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if they if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. See, the first result of denying God is they are corrupt. And by corrupt, it means immoral, moral corruption. We see the th same thought in Genesis 6.12 prior to the flood. God looked down on the earth and it was corrupt because all flesh, what? Had corrupted the earth. And then next, this defilement continues from corruption into ab abominable works. Abominable works. These acts of these God deniers includes ethical violations of God's law. And the concluding thought here says, it basically understates the, how universal this problem is, there is none who does good. See, here, here's the sequence of denying God. Uh, first there's corruption, then there are abominable works, and then, ultimately, it affects everyone. There is none good. And this is what lies behind Paul's indictment in Romans 1.18 to chapter 3.20. Once somebody no longer knows who God is, they no longer know who they are. See, because man is created in God's image and likeness, to reject God means to reject who man really is. So by rejecting God, we're destroying ourselves. And that is why good, or any moral excellence, any ethical value, vanishes from the earth. And believe me, if it wasn't for God's grace, we would all self-destruct. Now, just because man rejects God doesn't mean God is absent. That's why David stresses the transcendence of God when he says the Lord looks down from heaven. And when he looks down, what does he see? He sees all humankind, the children of men. And what is he looking for? To see if there are any who understand, who seek God. See, if we know the truth... We're going to seek the source of that truth. And for his part, God looks for those who are looking for him. As Jesus said in Luke 11, verse 9, I say to you, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. But the view, reality is here that the view from heaven is grim. They've all turned aside. They've together become corrupt. There's none who does good. No, not one. We have absolute clauses here that center around the rebellion, total rebellion of humanity. They had, and it begins with, they turned aside. They turned back. It's the negated form of the word for repent. Rather than turn to God, they've turned from God. And they have become corrupt, tainted morally. And what is the consequence? There's no one who does good. And anticipating someone's objection, David adds, no, not one. See, as humanity turns from God and, and from God's ways, humanity gets this false sense of freedom. You know, that's why we, we, we've got so much, quote-unquote, freedom today. Well, I'm free from this and I'm free from that. You know, we want freedom from uh, labels, okay? You can't label me a man or you can't label me a woman. Well, What's behind that? What's behind that is a rejection of God. Again, you reject God, you reject morality. 
You reject God, you reject wisdom. You reject God, hence, you're rejecting your own self. And that's why they want freedom from labels. That's just one example of what people want to be free from. They want to be free from authority. They want to be free from anything that has even the stench of morality upon it in their, in their thinking. But in reality, they're in bondage. They think they're, they're liberated, but their reality is warped. Now, we've seen so far then their depravity, their defilement. The third trait of the fool or of the atheist is his disposition. Verse 4. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my peoples as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? Now again, it's a rhetorical question that the answer is clearly yes. Do all the workers of wickedness not know? Yes, they know. They do abominable works. They don't do any good. They lack knowledge. And they've denied God's existence. They don't seek God. And they think that they can attack, destroy, devour God's people as bread. See, and again, in order to reject God, they have to repudiate anything and anyone who wants to hold up to God, who wants to hold the standard of God. And they want to devour us like bread. In other words, they do not call upon the name of the Lord. They don't want anything. They're disposed to not wanting anything to do with God. They're not loving God, and now they're not even loving their neighbors. Again, the ultimate end of atheism is a rejection of wisdom, a rejection of morality, a rejection of God, and a rejection of one's self. Now let's continue on to verses 5 through 7 and consider the tendencies of the fool. We looked at the traits of the fool. They're known for their depravity, defilement, and disposition. Now let's see three statements about their tendencies. First of all, the atheist has a tendency to be uneasy. Verse 5. There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. See, in verse 5 here exposes the consequence of, of their abomination. Though they deny God, they're still, they, they live with an underlying anxiety. And it amazes me how much anxiety is in the world today. Now, let's, let's be legitimate here. There is or are legitimate types of anxiety, okay? Uh, legitimate forms of anxiety that should be treated medically, uh, that uh, can be treated spiritually as well. And uh, we, we shouldn't undermine that. Okay, uh, we shouldn't, uh, uh, here's a real scientific term, poo-poo, uh, people who deal with anxiety. It's a very real issue. But have you noticed there has been an increase in anxiety in the world? And the increase in anxiety, a leading major factor in anxiety, and again, this is, doesn't mean that if somebody's struggling with anxiety, they're a God denier. Don't read into this. But we have to honestly evaluate all the anxiety that's in the world and ask ourselves, is that anxiety caused from a denial of God? For example, someone who's living an immoral lifestyle and has anxiety, at the heart of the matter, their anxiety is caused by their immorality. 
They're living in, in a denial of God. They're denying themselves. They want to be something that God did not determine them to be. So they're uneasy. They're anxious. See, those who deny God, and this is interesting, those who violently deny God are psychologically closer to God than they would admit. Let me explain. It says here, for God is with the righteous generation, and they know that. And what's interesting is when you look at some of the biggest atheists in the world, you'd be surprised at how psychologically close to God they really are. Consider Joseph Stalin. You know, before he became the man that history knows him to be, he was studying for the priesthood. Or how about Hugh Hefner? Hugh Hefner's father was a Methodist minister. Some of the most abominable atheists have some form of religious or, and I'm going to use this in the broadest sense, Christianized background. And that's what makes their repudiation of God even worse. They're uneasy. Great anxiety. Verse 6. The second tendency of the fool or the atheist is they're unsettled. Verse 6. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. So they put to shame the counsel or the wisdom, the advice of the afflicted. They undercut the, the, the poor. Oh, yeah, the Lord's his refuge. Sure it is. See, their denial of God and their violent-filled life results ultimately in a confrontation with God. I mean, really, think and look at all the violence in this world. Particularly within the last year, all the great violence. Violence on, doesn't matter if it's uh, left wing, right wing, whatever wing. Okay, violence is violence. But you want to know why there's so much violence? When you start getting down to the root, when you, when, when you begin to brush away, you know, all the nonsense and get down to the brass tacks of the issue, here's what you find out. The violence that they're perpetuating is because they've denied God. They hate the fact that God lives with the righteous. They hate the fact that God provides a refuge for the poor. And so what ideological atheism seeks to do is to extinguish the church. They want to remove any encounter with the God of the cross. And that's why there's so much violence today against Christianity and against the church. But I got news for you. They can be all unsettled they want. Communist China is a great example. In communist China today, the church suffers probably more than anywhere else in the world. But, the church is prospering more than anywhere else in the world. Think about that. And that stands to reason as to what scripture says. Look at the book of Acts. Every time the church was persecuted, what happened? It prospered. And, and who was it persecuted by? Pagans, atheists, people who denied God, or at the very least worshipped some other god. 
But every time the church is persecuted, it prospers. And I'll tell you why it prospers. Because it separates the wheat from the tares. It forces the church to, to get down to the, to the bare bones of what's important. What really matters. It removes all the glitz and the glamour. It removes all of the external nonsense. And gets down to, this is what church is all about. And when you get down to what's important and to what's real, the people of God will prosper. Not before that. But again, they will prosper. Verse 7. They're uncovered. So not only do they have a tendency to be uneasy and unsettled, but now they're uncovered. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice. Israel would be glad. See, their day is coming when the righteous will rejoice in their ultimate deliverance. The sin of unbelief is going to be uncovered. They can cover it up all they want right now. But when Christ comes, when Christ raptures the church, that is going to begin a series of judgments which is going to reveal sin for what it is. It is going to reveal their unbelief. It's going to reveal their immorality. They are going to be totally open before the holy God of the universe for who they are. And they are going to stand in the end and be judged accordingly. But for the righteous, we can rejoice. Because the Lord will restore his captive people. He has not turned his back upon us. But instead, he is always working to our ultimate deliverance. And we can praise God for that. You know, as we reflect on Psalm, uh, on Psalm 14, and again, you can also go and read Psalm 53, because basically the two texts are almost identical. But it helps us to understand people today. It, it, it gives us God's viewpoint on what is going on in the world today. Listen, when you're dealing with atheists, and I don't care what side of the political spectrum they're on. I don't care if they're Democrat, if they're Republican, if they're liberal, if they're conservative. I got news for you. If they're an atheist, they're opposed to God. And it doesn't matter how much they may agree with you. They're still opposed to God. And because they're opposed to God, they're ultimately going to be opposed to you. But in understanding now, in getting a better understanding on people, it's going to help you and I better minister to these people. Listen, once we accept and embrace the fact that, listen, they're God deniers. Listen, get rid of all, all the, the nonsense and just get down to the brass tacks of what they need the most. They need to be confronted with the gospel. And they need to see the gospel lived out in our lives. As, as Peter encouraged us, I believe it was in 1 Peter, you know, we need to win them not by our lips but by our godly lifestyle. Talk's cheap, Okay. We've got to show it in our life. And, and, and again, many will be brought to repentance and faith by our godly lifestyle. And so it also gives us some direction and encouragement in, when, again, when we're dealing with these people, not only in preaching the gospel, but to understand their true condition. We should not be surprised we should not, as believers, be overtaken with grief as to, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe why these people hold to this. I can't believe... You know, we act so surprised. Why? 
When you read Psalm 14, you get the picture. They deny God. They're morally corrupt. Everything they do is corrupt. They, they have no wisdom. Uh, they, they don't even uh, uh, know who they really are. And so in reality, we ought to pity them. But we have no need to fear them. No need to fear them. The only one we need to fear is the one who can destroy the soul and spirit. And that's God. And praise be to God that instead of destroying us, God will ultimately redeem us into his kingdom. And we'll deal with the wicked. Father God, I thank you for Psalm 14. I thank you for giving us this clear picture of what we're dealing with with people. Giving us this clear picture of the, of the atheist, of the pagan, of the God denier, and all that uh, goes into that, all that uh, relates to that, Father. And, and to, to truly grasp this, grasp this idea that uh, what that rejection of God entails. When they reject you, Lord, they, they, they reject wisdom. When they reject you, they reject morality. When they reject you, they even reject themselves. And so, Father, I pray that while there is still yet time, God, you might give us an opportunity through our lips and our life to be a picture to these individuals of, of who you are. That in seeing our good works, Father, by your grace, they might come to repentance and faith. That, Father, they might be aroused out of their God-denying, out of their immorality, out of their foolishness, and that they might come to see who you truly are. You've promised that that would happen, and so, Father, while we don't know who or when or how it will happen, we know that, Lord, because you've promised that there will be some who, through our godly lifestyle, will come to repentance, that, Lord, may we live that lifestyle. Father, I pray that you, you use this psalm to encourage your people not to despair, not to be overwhelmed, not to be surprised by the great wickedness in this world, but to understand you've already seen it. You've already written it. And it hasn't caught you off guard or by surprise. And so, Lord, rather than catch us by, off guard or by surprise, Lord, may it cause us to have pity upon them. May it cause us to lift them up in prayer and pray that, but God, by your grace, you might intervene in their lives while there is yet time while you are still long-suffering. And so, Father, we thank you for this, the end of this psalm that confirms for us, Father, that the day of redemption is approaching. And that, Lord, when the judge, Jesus Christ, comes, he'll rescue us, he'll set us free from the captivity of this sin-cursed world. And, uh, Father, we look with great anticipation to that day. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.